All right. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. Super excited to be with you as we continue our series here in the book of Romans. So if you've got a Bible, we'll be in Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 8. We're going to continue on from where Jeff kicked us off last week. Last week, Jeff talked about the greeting of Romans. Today, we're going to continue in that greeting as Paul gives thanks for this church here uh, at Rome. And then next week, we will get into the heart of the letter of the book of Romans. Now, before we do this, I want to tell you a little story. So a few years ago, I got a chance to go to visit Israel. All right, So if you ever get a chance to go, it's awesome, it's fun, it's historical. Don't go with some weirdo that has a bunch of prophecy charts. Just go with somebody who knows what they're doing. You'll have a lot of fun in Israel. But the thing I didn't like about going to Israel is that you have to fly there, right? Who knew? You couldn't just walk to Israel or drive your car there. And I personally despise flying, okay? I hate flying. First time I ever flew, I was a little kid, and we were going to my grandmother's funeral. And we flew over a tornado, or actually a storm system that was causing tornadoes in Louisiana, and the pilot was not paying attention. So as the flight attendants were laying down in the floor screaming for people to hang on, And as the guy in the bathroom was getting slammed around wall to wall, and as my Coke was hitting the ceiling and everyone was freaking out, I thought to myself, I'm not really going to be a flyer. I think I'm going to be more of a land guy, more of a land and water guy. Now, I've flown a bunch since then. You have to. You have to face your fears. It's 2018. You have to fly. But every time I fly, it's really, really, really awful. So we go to get ready to fly to Israel, and uh, we, we leave from DFW. And I get pulled aside, okay? I always get pulled aside when I fly because I'm a military-age male with a beard, and they assume that I'm a terrorist. So they pull me aside, do extra pat-downs, extra questions. We get on the plane, and here's the other thing you need to know. Not only do I hate flying, I get super motion sick, all right? Super motion sick. I can't read a book. I can't watch a movie. I literally just sit there and wait to die and try not to throw up. That's my plane experience for 13 hours or however long the flight is. So I get there, and I have a window seat, and I think, okay, good, at least I can rest my head against the window seat so when I throw up, it doesn't get all over everybody. And then this little kid wants to switch seats with me. And so I say, okay, I'll switch seats with you. Little did I know that he was in the middle of the middle aisle of the plane. So I get stuck between, like, these two huge Albanian guys, and I can't move, and I'm just sitting there trying not to throw up for 13 hours, okay? And then we land in Frankfurt, Germany to get a connecting flight. I hate connecting flights. I've already cheated death once. I don't need to cheat it again, all right? I'm the guy that when the plane lands, I clap. I'm like, we made it, everybody. We made it. And they're like, we usually make it. Uh, We usually make it. When I find out that somebody's a pilot, that's like the most, they're so brave. I shake their hand, and I'm like, how did you live this long? So we get off the plane in Frankfurt, Germany, and I get pulled aside again for another check. And this very official German-looking guy comes up to me, and he's doing a very invasive search. And I don't know what to do. I'm in a foreign country, so I'm like, uh, nine. Uh, no, no me gusta. I don't know what to say to get him not to do that. We later found out that that guy didn't even work for the airport. I'm kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. 30% chance he probably did. So we get on the connecting flight to fly into Tel Aviv, where I get pulled aside again for more checks and to make sure I'm not a terrorist. Just to be clear, I'm not. And uh, one of the cool things that we got to see in Israel is something that you don't get to see a ton here in the States, which is the uh, evangelical churches there, the congregations there, have believers that are Jewish ethnically and believers that are Gentile ethnically. You don't see that a lot in the States. Most churches in the States are predominantly Gentile. In fact, raise your hand in here if you are ethnically Jewish. You see? 
So in Israel, in Israel, though, you have congregations where there are ethnic Jews who believe in Jesus, and there are Gentiles that believe in Jesus, and uh, it's, it's a more diverse congregation in that sense. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because you have to understand this Jew-Gentile dynamic to understand not only today, but the book of Romans, okay? So the big racial clash in the U.S. is between white and black, but the big racial clash in the Bible is between Jew and Gentile. What is a Jew ethnically? A Jew is somebody who's descended from the line of Abraham. That's what a Hebrew, that's what an Israelite, that's what a Jew is. Everybody else is a Gentile, okay? So the categories are very simple. From the line of Abraham or Gentile. That's what those terms mean. And what's going to happen in the church at Rome is you're going to see this church come together, Jew and Gentile, and they're going to have to work through some of those issues that come from different backgrounds. Jews would have known the Bible, they would have known who God was, they would have known things about the Scriptures, whereas Gentiles came out of pagan religion, and so it causes a little bit of a uh, ripple effect there in the church. Now, just to recap some of the things Jeff said last week, the book of Romans is actually not a book, it's a letter, what's called an epistle, okay? It was written around 57 AD, somewhere between 55 and 58, give or take a year or so. Uh, It was probably written from Corinth at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, It was written by the Apostle Paul. Let me tell you why that's really important. Paul is not just some random guy giving you his thoughts on God. He's not like the author of The Shack or Jesus Calling, all right? He's an apostle. When he speaks, God speaks. As an apostle, he's one who's seen the resurrected Christ and one who's been commissioned by Christ to be an apostle, all right? So when he speaks, God speaks. When we say in this sermon series, Paul said, we're also saying God said, okay? So he writes this letter to this church. He writes it in Greek. Technically, uh, a guy named Tertius is the guy that pens the letter. Paul dictates it to this scribe. The fancy term is an amanuensis named Tertius. He writes the letter. It's written in Greek. It goes to this church in Rome, which is a mixed group of Jew and Gentile, okay? So what's going on is Paul is wanting to take some money to Jerusalem, and there from Jerusalem, he wants to go to Rome and visit the church at Rome, and then from Rome, he wants to go visit Spain. So Paul is headed west from Jerusalem to Rome to Spain. That's his goal, and he writes this letter Uh, And in this section today, we get to see him thank God for this church here at Rome. So before we get into verse 8, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, I thank you that you're good and that you love us and that all you do is good. And uh, we come before you only because of Christ and by the power of the Spirit and just ask for help as we dive into your word. We pray that you would uh, open our eyes and soften our hearts uh, that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's jump into verse 8. He says, first, okay? He will not come back to say second. He will not come back to say third. By saying the word first here, he means something like, let me begin by saying this. Before I talk about the gospel, before I talk about all these theological things, I want to give thanks for your faith. He says this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Here's what he's saying. I thank God for you because as the gospel has gone out, many people have heard about your faith. Let's break down verse 8. What does he mean by saying, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you? Here's the idea. You don't get to go before God as a sinner unless you are seen as perfect and somehow have a mediator, okay? We don't have access to God as sinners except through Christ, that there's one mediator between man and God, the the man Christ Jesus, all right, as Hebrews would say. He is our mediator. When we say at the end of a prayer in Jesus' name, that's not just a cool mantra that we say to hope that the prayer takes, right? Like a magic formula where God didn't hear it if you didn't say that. It's a reminder that we don't have access to God apart from Christ. That's why he's thanking God through Christ. I'll give you a little example. Let's say that you wanted to go up to the president at two in the morning 
and wake him up to get a glass of water. How, would that, how well would that go for you? You hop the fence, you avoid the snipers, you somehow get into the White House and you go up to the president and you're like, I'm thirsty. You're going to get shot like 40 times on that process. Why? Because you don't have access to the president like that. How much more is the gap between a sinner and an infinite and holy God? But through Christ, we are seen as perfect. Through Christ, we've been reconciled to God, and we can ask him for a glass of water at 2 in the morning. We have that kind of access to God. And so what's going on here is Paul is saying that, first of all, I thank my God through Christ. He is the one through whom we have access to God. And he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith. Okay? There is an implicit argument when he says because your faith that the faith they have comes from God. It makes no sense for Paul to thank God for their faith if God is not the one who gave them their faith. So let me just say this really strongly because you'll hear this repeated throughout Romans. Even the faith you have to believe in God comes from Him. Salvation is totally a work of God. It is totally a work of grace. It's not just that you are smarter than other people or more morally inclined than other people, and that's why you chose Christ. Natural man in our sin does not choose Christ. 100% of us reject him. It's only because he opens our eyes to see that we believe. It's like when I play catch. I have a a two-year-old son named Judah. And when we play catch, he's not very good at catch. I just throw the ball, it hits him, and he laughs. That's catch, okay? So if I want him to catch the ball, what I have to do is I have to bend his arms and say, hold your arms like this, and then I have to take the ball, and I have to drop it in his arms. At no point is he really doing the catching, That's really how our faith is when God saves us. Faith is not this good deed that we conjure up. God takes us, God holds out our arms, God drops the ball of salvation into our arms, and that's faith. Even the faith we have to believe in God comes from Him. Comes from Him. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In all the world. Now, let me tell you what's going on in Rome so that verse 8 pops out to you. Because what Paul's saying is, I'm thankful that your faith has gone out. As the gospel's gone out, people have heard about your faith, O Romans, okay? So what I want to do is I want to give you some facts about Rome so that you can see how miraculous this is. Now, some of these facts I'm going to give you about Rome happened just before the time of Paul. Other facts happened after the time of Paul. But either way, you're going to get a picture of how evil and pagan Rome was, okay? In the first century, Rome rules the world. All roads lead to Rome, and Rome is an evil, evil pagan city. If the devil had a throne on earth, it would be in Rome, okay? Rome killed millions of people just for their glory. As they were expanding the Roman Empire, they weren't doing just wars. They weren't freeing the oppressed. They were spreading the name and might and glory of Rome. So you have, you have uh, war crimes, you have bloodlust, you have all of this. It was an evil city. There were multiple temples devoted to false gods. There were idols, which the Bible would consider to be demon worship, since there is no other god than the true god of the Bible. And so what they're doing, there's paganism, there's false religion, there's false worship, there's sexual immorality. One of the ways that you would often worship at these temples is by being sexually intimate with a priestess prostitute or a priest prostitute. So there's sexual immorality in this. There's evil trade. They're ripping each other off. It is a pagan pagan, pagan place. You think of things like uh, the Roman Colosseum, right? You think of the gladiatorial games. Scholars estimate that over the history of Rome that there were 3.5 million people killed in the gladiatorial games. 3.5 million. In just one demonstration, Emperor Titus, he flooded the arena, had a mock naval battle happen where 3,000 men took part in that battle. 
So in one day, you could just kill thousands upon thousands upon thousands. You have a strong persecution of Christians going on at this time. Christians in the first century were really misunderstood. Uh, We were accused of being cannibals because we said that we ate the body and drank the blood of Christ. We were accused of sexual impropriety because the meetings of early Christians were called love feasts, so non-Christians would assume negative things about the term love there. Christians were uh, called atheists by Romans. Why? Why would a Christian be called an atheist? Because we didn't worship all the gods of Rome. We just worshiped the one Trinitarian God. And so you have all this evil and all this paganism and all this violence that's going on. You have evil emperors killing Christians. The guy that's probably in power when Romans is being written is a guy named Nero. You ever heard of Nero? Nero Caesar? This crazy evil emperor? Nero partook in two gay marriages, one in which he played the role of the bride and one in which he portrayed the role of the groom. He killed his mother, he killed his brother, and he kicked his pregnant wife to death. He used to take Christians and dip them in tar and then impale them on spikes and light them on fire to light his garden parties and would say things like this, truly you are the light of the world. Truly you are the light of the world. That's Rome. A historian named Tacitus says this about Christians. Nero punished a race of men who were hated for their evil practices. These men were called Christians. He got a number of people to confess. On their evidence, a number of Christians were convicted and put to death with dreadful cruelty. Some were covered with the skins of wild beasts and left to be eaten by dogs. Others were nailed to the cross. Many were burned alive and set on fire to serve as torches at night. Okay? You ever heard of a guy named Caligula, an emperor named Caligula? Little boots is what that name means. He tried to make his horse a part of the Roman Senate. Crazy guy. Used to walk around talking to the moon. He strangled children. And one day, his nephew had a cough, and to cure his cough, he had his nephew beheaded. Okay? Now, take all that in mind, what I just said, and now realize that within all of that, there is a thriving Christian community in Rome. No matter how hard the devil tries, no matter how evil or pagan it is, Jesus promises that the gates of Hades will not overcome his church, and they never have. So Paul is saying, this is amazing that within the center of paganism, you have the gospel going out. It's like hearing today that there's a thriving Christian community in Mecca or something like that. It would cause your heart to rejoice. It would cause your heart to rejoice. Look again at verse 8. At the end of it, he says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Where he says all the world there, he doesn't mean literally every single person's heard about it. What he means is the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. The gospel has gone out to the nations. What was a very Jewish ethnocentric religion is now going to the four corners of the earth. Think about that. How did a Jewish religion 7,000 miles away, 2,000 years ago, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, make it to McKinney, Texas, because the gospel's gone out. Somebody told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who eventually told you, and you became a Christian. The gospel goes out to all nations. Let's look at verses 9 through 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Here you see the heart of Paul, the pastor. He longs for them. He prays for them continually. He mentions them always in his prayers. What he's saying is, I love you. I long to see you. And here's what's crazy. Paul had never even met these Christians. There's just something in the heart of you, if you're a Christian, that you just naturally love other Christians. 
When you find out that your coworker's a Christian, your heart leaps a little bit. Or when you find out that your neighbor's a Christian, your heart leaps a little bit. John 13, 35. We're going to throw up a few verses on the screen. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4, 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You can tell whether or not somebody loves God by how they act with other people. And what Paul does is he says, I've longed to come to you. I I want to meet you. There's already a love in Paul's heart for these people just because they're Christians and he's a Christian. Okay? Let me step away from the text for a second just to give a little aside for you here at Parkway. In case you don't know, we love you. Staff, elders, deacons, we love you. If you don't know that, I want you to know that. I don't want you to feel like we're just people that get up here and teach or tell you what to do. Throughout the week, we are praying for you by name. When we're thinking of sermons or lessons, we think, how would this person hear that? How would this person hear that? What do we need to say? How can we craft this? We go through our database and we think, who do we need to pray for? Who do we need to send a letter to? Who do we need to send an email to? We love you. Now, not that you might not always feel loved. There might be times in the future where we mess up. Let me just apologize in advance. That will happen. But Paul here says, I've never met you, but I already love you. But I already love you. Okay? Look again at verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. What does that mean in the gospel of his son? If you're around Parkway for any amount of time, you're going to hear us use the word gospel. Okay? We talk about believing the gospel, preaching the gospel, telling people the gospel, reorienting your life around the gospel. We want to be gospel-centered in everything we do. What on earth does gospel mean? It's one of those words that a lot of times gets thrown around and people don't understand all the meaning and connotation and all of that behind it, okay? The word gospel is the Greek word euangelion, okay? And angelion is a message. That prefix you means good. Like when you go to a funeral, you give a eulogy, which is a good word, a good logos about the person. So euangelion is a good message, the good news. This is the central theme of Christianity, what I'm about to say, okay? Christianity is not about being a good person. It's not about getting saved and then you trying to be a good person. The gospel, according to the Bible, is this. We're going to throw it up on the screen. A little definition here of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that the God of Israel is putting the sin-scarred world back to rights by reestablishing his rule and reign, i.e. his kingdom, over the world through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and coronation of his eternal son, Jesus the Messiah, and by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit with the purpose of stomping out all that is evil and redeeming sinful humanity by grace unto the glory of the triune God. I'm going to read that again. If you ever focus on something or memorize something, or, or this is it, all right? This is it. Let me read it again. The gospel is the good news that the God of Israel is putting the sin-scarred world back to rights by reestablishing his rule and reign, what the Bible calls his kingdom, over the world through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and coronation of his eternal son, Jesus the Messiah, and by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, with the purpose of stomping out all that is evil and redeeming sinful humanity by grace unto the glory of the triune God. I give you that because throughout the entire book of Romans, you're going to keep hearing this phrase, gospel. I preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel goes forward. Believe, believe. What is it wanting you to believe? That's what it's wanting you to believe. If you want to know what Christianity is about or you want to know what God wants from you, he wants you to know that message. He wants you to know that gospel. The good news that the God of Israel, the triune God, is fixing the brokenness in the world through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and through the sending of the Spirit. 
That's what's going on with the gospel of his son. The gospel of his son. Let's go to the next verses, 11 through 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Let me summarize verses 11 through 12. Paul's saying, I can't wait to see you so that we might encourage each other in our mutual faith. Now, I want to say this. In this part of the text, the place that we get hung up on is there where the phrase he says, spiritual gift, okay? Spiritual gift. When it comes to spiritual gifts, people get super weird on one end of the spectrum or the other, okay? So I need to say some things about spiritual gifts before I say what Paul's actually meaning here, okay? The word there that's used in Greek for gift is the word charisma. It's pronounced charisma. It's where we get the word charismatic. Someone who's a charismatic is someone who believes that the gifts mentioned specifically in 1 Corinthians are still around for today. But this term is even used outside of Christianity to just talk about somebody with a charismatic personality or someone who's a charismatic speaker. It means that they're a gifted speaker or they have a gifted personality. That's what the term means. Now, when it comes to spiritual gifts, people get super weird on one end of the spectrum or the other. They either assume that God can't even heal people today, which is just crazy on one side, or they become like Benny Hinn on the other, okay, who says that there's nine members of the Trinity and God wants us to have the streets of gold in heaven today now, okay? We don't want to fall into either of those camps. I personally have been hurt by some of these things. I had a lady that uh, said she was a prophetess one time when I was in high school that came up to me and told me that my dad was going to commit suicide before I graduated. My dad's here today, by the way, so she's a false prophetess. So what we do is we, we err on one end of the spectrum, and, and people, because this is such a misunderstood concept in our culture, we don't really know what to do with it biblically, okay? We don't really know what to do with it biblically. Notice here that, that none of that is what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about the kind of gifts that we're thinking about really at all. We have a tendency to think that the gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians are all the gifts that there are. That's not true. The gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians are just a sampling. It's not an exhaustive list, and Paul's primarily dealing with problems in 1 Corinthians, Okay? A spiritual gift is any natural talent or miraculous ability you have that can be used for the church. Any natural talent or miraculous ability you have that can be used for ministry. Notice that it's to serve others. He wants to impart this to strengthen them, to strengthen them. Now, everything that I just said has nothing to do with what Paul means here, though. All Paul means here in verses 11 through 12 is simply this. I want to be a blessing to you. When I show up, I just want to bless you somehow. The text doesn't tell us how. He just wants to be a blessing to him. And then I think verse 12 clarifies specifically what he means. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Okay? This is a soapbox for me, so let me, let me just get up on my soapbox real quick. You can't do Lone Ranger uh, Christianity. You have to have that mutual encouragement. You have to have community. You are not wired to do Christianity by yourself. You're not the whole body. You're just one part. Okay? Take your hand and cut it off and leave it outside and then go back a few days later and see how it's doing. Do you think it will do well? It will not because it needs the rest of the body. That's who we are. We need the rest of the body or we don't function well. Okay? What we've done as Protestants is we've realized that because we get to go through God just through Christ and we don't have to go through the Roman Catholic Church or a Roman Catholic priest, we've really move the pendulum so far the other way that we act as though we don't need community and that we don't need other people and that we don't need the church, and that's just not true. And that's just not true. Notice that there's mutual encouragement here. It's a give and take. Most people select a church based upon what scratches all their itches. That's not how it works. What you do when you pick a church is you take from the church 
but you also give to the church. A church takes from you, but a church also gives to you. There's a mutual partnership and a mutual love and relationship so that our faith is encouraged. Why, when we do baptisms, do we have everybody go out there and gather around the baptistry? It's because it encourages our faith. When we see others, other people's faith, it encourages our faith. Why do we have new members stand up in front of the congregation while we pray for them? It's not to, to, to freak them out. I said this in the members' meeting. I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm a very, very, very high extrovert, okay? I'm a very high extrovert. If I'm exhausted, I want to hang out with 100 people and work a room. That's what makes me feel rested. But I've heard recently that there are some people called introverts, and they don't like that. Why do we have those people stand up when we announce them as new members? It's because we're encouraged by their mutual faith. Why, when we sing in church, do we not go to different corners of the church and everybody just sing to themselves? Because there's a a mutualness, there's a community to our faith. There's a community to our faith. One of the things we've begun doing in our community group is we will pick a couple, and everyone will go around the room and just encourage that couple. Not constructive criticism, not like, man, you'd be a lot better looking if you shaved that mustache or something. Not like that, right? It's instead, it's actual just encouragement. I just want to tell you that I love you. I've seen you grow so much this year. You're a great husband. You're a great father. I just want you to know that you're so kind. You always call and follow up to people. And as we encourage people, sometimes they just start crying. Why? Because we're made to encourage each other. We have a mutual faith. We're saved into a body. We're saved into a community. And so Paul says, when I visit you, my hope is that the gift that we might have is that we mutually encourage each other in our faith. We remember that we're not doing Lone Ranger Christianity, and we're not struggling just as individuals by ourselves, but we're struggling as a body. When one part of the body weeps, the other parts weep with it. When one part of the body rejoices, the other parts rejoice. The other parts rejoice. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. By the way, that little phrase when Paul says that, he'll say that several times in the New Testament. That means pay attention to what I'm about to say, okay? I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Okay? Here's what Paul's saying. Don't think that I haven't come to you because I don't love you. Don't think that I haven't visited you, O church in Rome, because I just didn't care about you. I've wanted to come to you, and I haven't been able to. If Romans is really written towards the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he is busy. He's planting churches, he's getting arrested, he's writing letters, he's dealing with spiritual attack. There's a lot that's going on. And so he's saying, please don't think that I haven't visited just because I don't care. I haven't been able to see you, but I love you, but I love you. And then he says something that I find to be really, really, really interesting. He wants to visit them in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What does that mean? Let me tell you a little story. When I was in uh, college... I worked for a really nice restaurant, like really nice, high-end. Most of you probably haven't eaten there. It's very expensive. It's called Chili's, okay? <laughs> worked for Chili's. Now, Chili's, is, is, it's, not, it's not as bad as like Applebee's, right? Applebee's is like the Arby's of a sit-down restaurant. I'm just hating on all the restaurants, right? Club B's, it sounds ridiculous. Every time I'm in an Applebee's, I think to myself, why am I here? And I feel like I've made bad life decisions to end up here, okay? So it's not Applebee's, but it's not a great restaurant. Okay? I think their motto for Chili's is like, we're okay. All right? Chili's. It's okay food. I think that's kind of the motto. So when I worked there, I enjoyed working there, and it used to be better than it is today because they used to have something called the Awesome Blossom. Do you remember the Awesome Blossom? It was a French fried onion that had something like 9,000 calories, 
And it, its guarantee was to give you a heart attack. Like that was on the label. They had a little asterisk and you look down on the menu and it's like, we'll give you a heart attack in three to six weeks, okay? They also had these big chocolate shakes, which they don't have anymore, that were so thick that you had to eat them with a spoon. You couldn't drink them with a straw. Also 9,000 calories, okay? So when I worked for Chili's, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. Again, I'm an extrovert. I'm a people person. One day, as uh, we were serving lunch, there was a lady who brought in her purse, and in her purse, she had some pepper spray, okay? What's called OC spray. It's better than mace. Let's just say it that way. Better than mace. So she has this pepper spray in her purse as a self-defense tool in case someone attacks her, I guess, on her way to Chili's. And so she brings it into Chili's, and in the middle of her lunch, something breaks, and that can of OC spray just starts going, Okay? everybody's coughing and hacking and snot's going everywhere and people are trying not to throw up and we're opening the doors and turning on the fans. Basically a normal day at Chili's, right? And so uh, everybody's... What was so interesting about uh, that pepper spray attacking her is the irony of it. The reason you buy pepper spray is to protect you from other people, not from the pepper spray itself, okay? Now here's why I tell you this as Paul's talking about the Gentiles. That's kind of what Israel is in the Old Testament, They're kind of like a pepper spray can that's supposed to be good, but goes bad as well, okay? If you've ever wondered, what is the deal with Israel? When you look in the Old Testament, what is the deal with Israel? What is the deal with the Jews? What is the deal with the Hebrews? Why do we say things from the stage like a Jew would have understood it this way? What is the deal with Israel? What is the deal with Judaism? Here's what it is, ready? When mankind sinned, God could have just condemned us all. But instead, what he does is he goes to a man named Abram, who is a moon-worshipping pagan, and he says, hey, you're not going to be a moon-worshipping pagan anymore. You're going to follow me. He renames him Abraham, and he promises that through his descendants is going to come a Messiah. Through his lineage is going to come somebody that's going to bless the whole world. So in a sense, what Israel was meant to be was God's rescue team. Israel was supposed to look like what it would look like if a nation was under God, okay? Israel was supposed to keep God's law. Israel wasn't supposed to commit idolatry. Israel was supposed to be faithful. And through that lineage would come a Messiah. But here's the thing. Israel's like that broken pepper spray can. They fail too. It's like if somebody got lost in the woods and you sent somebody out to find them and then they got lost in the woods. That's the story of Israel. That's the story of Israel. You guys be my rescue team. Okay, you commit the same sins too. Dang it, right? That's kind of what's going on with Israel. So what you have is you have Israel used to send a Messiah in the world to be a blessing to the Gentiles, okay? To be a blessing to the Gentiles. Now, there's an entire system of theology that that treats it as though God is really just concerned with Israel, and the rest of the world, the church, is just kind of a parenthesis in God's plan. I think that viewpoint is completely backwards. I think God is about the whole world, and Israel is that parenthesis that he uses to reach the whole world. That's why the Bible starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 12. God is the God of the whole world. The world falls into sin. He uses Israel to send a Messiah, and then he is back to redeeming the Gentiles. He is back to redeeming the whole world. And so what Paul is simply saying is, my hope is that I might reap a harvest among these non-Jews, among these Gentiles, okay? So when the apostles are kind of divvying up who's going to go to whom, Peter decides he's going to minister to the Jews. Paul decides he's going to minister to the Gentiles. Let me give you a text on this. Galatians 2, 7 through 9. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, that's non-Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. What Paul is saying is that God has called Peter to minister to the Jews. He's called Paul to minister to the Gentiles. I say all of that simply to say Paul's hope in going to Rome is to continue to be a blessing to the nations by proclaiming the Messiah who is to save all nations, anybody who will trust in Him, both Jew and Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile. Verses 14 through 15. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Here you see Paul the preacher. Why does Paul preach according to this text? Is it so he can make a lot of money? Is it so he can get a bunch of Twitter followers? Is it so he can preach at the coolest conference or anything like that? No, the reason Paul says he has to preach is because he has to. God has made it where he has to. That's what it means for him to be an apostle. God's told him to preach. He can't not preach. 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I do not preach the gospel. Now, Paul says I'm under obligation. And he now says two other groups. He says both to Greeks and to barbarians. Okay, let me explain what's going on here. You have Jews, you have Gentiles, and within Gentiles, you have two kinds of Gentiles. Cultured, smart Gentiles, and non-cultured, unsmart, I said that intentionally, Gentiles. Okay? What Paul is saying is that he's obligated to preach the gospel to all kinds of people, regardless of how wise or refined that they are. Okay? So when you think of the Greeks, you think of a cultured people. You think of Plato, you think of Aristotle, you think of democracy and logic and rhetoric and these kind of things. The term barbarian, by the way, in Greek is a derogatory term. It's actually a little bit of a racist term, barbarian, okay? Uh, Do you know what an onomatopoeia is? An onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like a sound, okay? So the word snap kind of sounds like snap, right? Or the word pop kind of sounds like pop. The word in Greek, barbarian, is an onomatopoeia. It's to make fun of the way that other cultures talked. So according to the Greeks, when they heard other people speak from other cultures, it sounded like this, bar, 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 bar. And that's why they called them barbarians. It's a way to make fun of their language because they're uncultured anyway. I'll give you a little example. It's now time to make fun of Ikea. Ikea, a few thoughts. Number one, don't ever go there on a Saturday. Number two, if there's ever a fire in there, everybody dies because you have to go through all the exhibits and it's a huge maze. Yes, they have fire exits, but they cover it with a bed, okay? So you have to go through, burn, grab a pretzel on your way out or whatever it is, okay? Ikea. Number three, excellent furniture as long as you don't plan on moving more than once. Excellent furniture as long as you don't plan on moving more than once. Those are my thoughts on Ikea. Now, when we go to Ikea, because it's a Swedish store, all their furniture has really weird names, right? So you go to buy a bed and it's called something like the Bajorg. And there's like four J's and an umlaut over the O, okay? So what I will do is I'm not going to take the time to actually say that because I don't speak that language. So what I'll go up to Katie and I'll say, Katie, do we need the Ugin Flugin Guggen bookshelf? Like that. What am I doing? I'm making fun of a language that I don't speak because I don't care to take the time to learn it. That's what's going on with the term barbarian, okay? So I say all of that to say this. Paul says he's under obligation both to the wise and the foolish. That's what he says in the very next line. How are we to understand Greeks and barbarians? The very next line, both to the wise and to the foolish. The gospel goes out to all types of people, 
the gospel goes out to all types of people. It is not just for one race. It is not just for one gender. It is not just for the intelligent or the unintelligent. The gospel is the means of salvation for all types of people, okay? Christianity is not elitist. That's tough for me because I'm kind of an elitist. Christianity is not. It's for all kinds of people. What's so interesting to me is on the one hand, you have some of the smartest people in world history who are Christians. You have guys like Augustine. You have guys like Anselm. You have guys like Thomas Aquinas. You have guys like Martin Luther that translates the entire New Testament from Greek into German in just 10 weeks by himself while undergoing spiritual attack, locked in a castle. You have guys like John Calvin, whose first work is a commentary on Cicero written in Latin in his early 20s. What were you doing in your early 20s? So you have that on one hand. You have Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is considered to be the greatest mind to ever come out of America. He graduated Yale at 17, became the president of Princeton, would study 14 hours a day. And he was a Puritan, Calvinistic, Congregationalist pastor. But on the other hand, the Bible says that God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You see, the gospel goes out to all kinds of people. God's saving mercy is not restricted to one class or to one gender or to one race or to one socioeconomic status. God is the God of all people, and therefore He demands obedience and repentance from all people. Now, look at this last point. This is what I want to end with. Verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, this is why this is fascinating. Does Paul believe that he's writing this letter to people who are Christians? Yes, he does. He calls them Christians at multiple points. Why then does he say that he wants to preach the gospel to them? Here's why. Ready? Because you never get past the gospel. You never graduate beyond the gospel. The gospel is not just the thing that saves you, and therefore you then move past it, and you just try to do the best that you can on your own. Everything you do in the Christian life is linked to the gospel. That is our thing. Being a Christian is not about being a good person. It's about knowing the gospel and trusting the gospel, even post-conversion. The gospel is of everything to us. It's not just the thing that saves us, but it's when I have a bad marriage, it's what I run to. Because my love and my hope and my joy can only be found in Christ because my spouse will let me down and I will let her down. It's when I'm feeling awful about myself or I'm in depression or anxiety or self-hate, you run back to the gospel because in the gospel, it shows that you're loved. You're loved so much that God sent His Son for you. Whatever you're dealing with, the gospel is the solution somehow. In one sense, counseling people is really difficult because there's a lot of different factors that go into it. In another sense, it's really easy because all of the problems somehow go back to sin and all of the solutions somehow goes back to the gospel. Don't think that the gospel is just the thing that saves you and then you move on. Everything you do has to go back to the gospel. It has to go back to the fact that God loved you, that God saved you, that Christ paid the penalty, that you're saved by grace, that you can't do anything to earn it. That is the solution. It's the solution to your bitterness. It's the solution to your porn addiction. It's the solution to your bad marriage. It's the solution to your doubts. It is everything. For Paul, the gospel is not merely something that saves people. It's the thing that disciples people. It's the thing that grows people. Going back to the message of God's kingdom, which is established by grace, is everything to him. Where are you, as a Christian, not believing the gospel? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself every day? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself in all your struggles? What area in your life right now is most pressing on you? Is it something with your job, something with your finances, something with your family, something with sin you're struggling with? What is that issue that's most pressing on you? Because whatever it is, the solution somehow is the gospel. 
It somehow is the gospel. And so Paul is eager to preach the gospel to people who already know it, to people who already know it for their continued sanctification. If you're somebody in here today, and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're just a visitor, maybe you're just checking us out, you're not a Christian, you don't know if you're a Christian, let me tell you why you're here. Let me tell you what God wants from you. He wants you to become a Christian. That's it. That's what he wants. He wants you to stop trying to be righteous on your own and stop trying to do better and clean yourself up, which might be the very reason you came to church to begin with, and instead come before him broken and empty and as a sinner and repent and ask Christ to save you. That's what he wants. You are here to become a Christian if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, your job is to be reminded of the gospel because this is not something you move beyond, because it's not something you move beyond. What I want to do now is I want to pray for us as the uh, people helping serve communion come forward to help pass out the elements. And as I pray, I want you to cry out to Christ for whatever you need. Maybe you don't even know what you need, just something feels off. Would you ask him to help you? Would you ask him to heal you? Would you ask him to save you? Would you ask him to uh, be your all in all? Would you repent where there's sin? Because here's the great thing about God. Every time you expect for him to backhand you, he gives you grace because Christ has already been backhanded on your behalf. Because Christ has already been backhanded on your behalf. Let me pray, and as I pray, you do some praying for whatever you need to pray for as the people serving communion come forward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just your overwhelming kindness, just your overwhelming uh, goodness, and uh, we thank you for sending Christ, and we thank you for giving us the Spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so I just want to pray for anybody in here who's struggling, anybody in here who's hurting, like me. I just confess this has been a difficult week. I feel as though you're a million miles away. I feel like you'll never get me out of my struggles. But the good news is, is that my feelings are liars, and you've already gotten me out of them because 2,000 years ago you sent Christ, and so I thank you for that. So we just ask for help uh, as we continue now and remember that sacrifice in communion. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.